Chapter 4 Christopher Quarles, College Professor and Master Detective by Percy James Brebner This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Strange Case of Michael Hall Quarles was professedly a theorist, and I admit that he often outraged my practical mind. I believe the practical people govern the affairs of the world, but occasionally one is brought face to face with such strange occurrences that it is impossible not to speculate what would happen had not the world its theorists and dreamers too. Early one morning, about a week after the mad burglar's case, I received a wire from Zena Quarles asking me to go to Chelsea as soon as possible. A request from her was a command to me, and, dispensing with breakfast except for a hasty cup of coffee, I started at once. She came to the door herself. Come in here for a minute, she said, leading the way into the dining room and closing the door. Grandfather does not know I have sent for you. I am troubled about him. For the last three days he has not left his room. He will not let me go to him. His door is not locked, but he commanded me quite irritably not to come until he called for me. For three days he has not wanted my companionship, and never before do I remember so long in isolation. What is he doing? I asked. She did not answer at once, and when she did the words came with some hesitation. Of course, he is an extraordinary man, with powers which one cannot exactly define, powers which, don't think me foolish, powers which might prove dangerous. In a way, you and I understand him, but I think there is a region beyond into which we are not able to follow him. I admit there have been times when I have been tempted to think that some of his philosophical reasonings and fantastic statements were merely the eccentricities of a clever man, intentional mystifications, a kind of deceptive paraphernalia. I have thought so, too, I said. We are wrong, she said decisively. He wanders into regions in which we cannot follow, where he touches something which is outside ordinary understanding, and when he is only dimly conscious of the actualities about him. Don't you remember his saying once that we ought to strive toward the heights and see the truth which lies beyond what we call truth? He does climb there, I believe, and in order that he may do so, his empty room and isolation are necessary. I wonder whether there is any peril in such a journey. I did not venture to answer. Being a practical man, a discussion on these lines was beyond me. As I went to the professor's room, I framed a naughty, if unnecessary, problem out of a case upon which I was engaged, but I was not to propound it. I was suddenly plunged into a mystery which led to one of the most curious investigations I have ever undertaken, and showed a new phase of the professor's powers. Christopher Quarles was sitting limply in the armchair, but he started as I entered, and looked at me with blinking eyes, as though he did not recognize me. Energy returned to him suddenly, and he sat up. "'Paper and pencil,' he said, pointing to the writing table. I handed him a pencil and a writing block. By a gesture, he intimated that he wanted me to watch him. Quarles was no draftsman. He had told me so, quite unnecessarily, because I had often seen him make a rough sketch to illustrate some argument, and he always had to explain what the various parts of the drawing stood for. Yet, as I watched him now, he began to draw with firm, determined fingers, a definite line here, another there, sometimes pausing for a moment as if to remember the relative position of a line or the exact curve in it. For a time there seemed no connection between the lines, no meaning in the design. 
I have seen trick artists at a music hall draw in this way, beginning with what appeared to be the least essential parts, and then with two or three touches, causing all the rest to fall into proper perspective and a complete picture. So it was with Quarles. Two or three quick lines, and the puzzle became a man's head and shoulders. No one could doubt that it was a portrait with certain characteristics exaggerated, not in caricature, but enough to make it impossible not to recognize the original from the picture. It was an attractive face, but set in rather tragic in expression. Quarles did not speak. He surveyed his work for a few moments, slightly corrected the curve of the nostril, and then very swiftly drew a rope around the neck, continuing it in an uncertain line almost to the top of the paper. The sudden stoppage of the pencil gave a jagged end to the line. The rope looked as if it had been broken. The effect was startling. Three times he has visited me,' said Quarles. First, just as the dusk was falling, he stood in the window there, a little more in the dark shadow against the light outside. The second time was when the lamp was lighted. I looked up suddenly, and he was standing there by the fireplace, gazing at me intently. It was flesh and blood, real, not a ghost, no shape of mist trailing into my vision. An hour ago, at least it seems only an hour ago, he came again. The door opened, and he entered. He stood there, just in front of me, as clearly visible in the daylight as you are, and as real. When you opened the door, I thought my visitor had come a fourth time. And what is the meaning of this, this broken rope? I said, pointing to the drawing. Broken? And he looked at the paper closely. My hand stopped involuntarily. It is a good sign, encouraging. But the rope is not really broken yet. That is for us to accomplish. What do you mean? I mean that in one of his majesty's prisons this man lies under sentence of death, that he is innocent of the crime, that he has been permitted to come to me for help. But Quarles sprang from his chair. Ah, leave questioning alone. I do not know how much time we have to prevent injustice being done. Take this drawing, Wigan. Find out where the man is, work night and day to get the whole history, and then come to me. We must not lose a moment. Providence must have sent you to Chelsea this morning, another sign of encouragement. I did not explain how I came to be there, nor say there was no foundation for encouragement in my unexpected arrival. Indeed, but for my talk with Zena that morning, I should have been inclined to argue with him. As it was, I left Chelsea only half convinced that I was not being misled by the fantastic dream of a man not in his usual state of health. I was soon convinced of my error. Quarles's drawing was a portrait of a real man. He was lying under sentence of death in Worcestershire, the case against him so clear that there seemed to be no doubt about his guilt. The story was a sordid one, had created no sensation, had presented no difficult problem. But, under the peculiar circumstances, it was only natural that I should work with feverish haste to learn all the details of the crime. And I intimated to the authorities that facts had come to my knowledge, which threw a doubt on the justice of the sentence, and that a postponement at least of the last penalty of the law would be advisable. This advice was not the outcome of anything I discovered. It was given entirely on my faith in Christopher Quarles. Later, I told the following story to the professor and Zena in the empty room. Michael Hall, the condemned man, is an artist, I said. The portrait of him, professor, is a good one. I have seen him, and he impresses you at once as possessing the artistic temperament. Whether he has anything beyond the temperament, I cannot judge, but the fact remains that he has had little success. He is a gentleman, and there is something convincing in the manner in which he protests his innocence. Yet I am bound to say that every circumstance points to his guilt. Possessed of two or three hundred pounds, 
and an unlimited faith in himself, he married. There's one child, three years old. The money dwindled rapidly, and a year ago, to cut down expenses, he went to live at Thornfield, a village near Pershore, in Worcestershire. At Thornfield, he became acquainted with an elderly gentleman named Parrish, a bookworm, something of a recluse, and an eccentric. For no particular reason, and apparently without any foundation, Mr. Parrish had the reputation of being a rich man. Generally speaking, the inhabitants of Thornfield are humble people, and the fact that Parrish had a little old silver may have given rise to the idea of his wealth. He does not appear to have had even a banking account. The old gentleman welcomed a neighbor of his own class, and Hall was constantly in his house. That Hall should come to Thornfield and live in a tiny cottage might suggest to anyone that he was not overburdened with this world's goods, but Hall declares that Parrish had no knowledge of his circumstances. Only on one occasion was Parrish in his cottage, and money was never mentioned between them. Yet Hall was in difficulties. He pawned several things in Pershore, small articles of jewelry belonging to his wife, giving his name as George Cross, and an address in Pershore. One evening, a Sunday evening, Hall was with Parrish. The housekeeper, Mrs. Ashworth, an elderly woman, the only servant living in the house, said in her evidence that Hall came at seven o'clock. The church clock struck as he came in. Her master expected him to supper. Hall says that he left at half-past nine, but Mrs. Ashworth said it was midnight when he went. She had gone to bed at nine, early hours are the rule in Thornfield, and had been asleep. She was always a light sleeper. She was roused by the stealthy closing of the front door, and just then midnight struck. Early next morning, they rise early in Thornfield, Mrs. Ashworth came down and found her master upon the floor of his study, dead. He had been struck down with a life preserver, which was found in the room and belonged to Hall. The housekeeper ran out into the village street, but it seems there was nobody about, and some twenty minutes elapsed before anyone came to whom she could give the alarm. Hall's arrest followed. From the first he protested his innocence, but the only point in his favor appears to be the fact that he was found at his cottage and had not attempted to run away. Everything else seems to point to his guilt. Although he says he left Parrish's house at half-past nine, he did not arrive home until after midnight. His wife innocently gave this information, and Hall, who had not volunteered it, explained his late return by saying that he was worried financially and had gone for a lonely walk to think matters over. He admits that the life preserver belonged to him. Mr. Parrish had spoken once or twice of the possibility of his being robbed, and that evening Hall had made him a present of the weapon but had not told his wife that he was going to do so. The police discovered that two days before the murder a valuable silver salver belonging to the parish had been pawned in Pershore in the name of M. Hall, and the pawnbroker's assistant identified Hall. The search among Parrish's papers after the murder resulted in the discovery of a recent will under which all the property was left to Hall. The condemned man declared he was ignorant of this fact, but the prosecution suggested that his knowledge of it and the straits he was in for money were the motive for the crime. Except on the assumption that Hall is guilty, there appears to be no motive for the murder. Nothing but the silver salver was missing. Quarles had not interrupted me. He had listened to my narrative, his features set, his eyes closed, the whole of his mind evidently concentrated on the story. As I stopped, I looked at Zena. I wonder the housekeeper did not look out of her bedroom window to see that it was Michael Hall who left the house. Zena said slowly. She slept at the back of the house, I returned. 
I had not thought of that. And then, after a pause, during which her grandfather's eyes remained fixed upon her as though he would compel her to say more, she went on. How was it, since they are early risers in Thornfield, that Mrs. Ashworth had to wait twenty minutes before anyone came? The house isn't isolated, is it? No, I understand it is in the middle of the village street. There may be something in that question, Wigan, said Quarles, becoming alert. Tell me, are the house and its contents still untouched? I believe so. According to Mrs. Ashworth, Mr. Parrish appears to have had only one relation living, a nephew named Charles Ede. He lives in Birmingham, and at the trial said he knew nothing whatever about his uncle, and had not seen him for years. Any reason? No. The family had drifted apart. I am simply stating what came out in the evidence. About the will, said Quarles, was any provision made for Mrs. Ashworth in it? No, it leaves everything to Hall, and there is a recommendation to sell the books in London, except a few which are specially mentioned as being of no value intrinsically, and which Hall is advised to read. According to Hall, the old gentleman talked much about literature, and declared that the whole philosophy of life was contained in about a score of books. I have a copy of the list given in the will. Who witnessed the signature to the will? Quarles asked. A lawyer in Pershore, and his clerk. This was the only business transaction the lawyer had had with Mr. Parrish, and he knew little about him. I think we must go to Birmingham, said Quarles. Sometimes there was only one particular standpoint from which the real facts can be seen, and I fancy Birmingham represents that standpoint for us. I suppose you can arrange for us to have access to Mr. Parrish's house at Thornfield, Wigan? I will see about that, I answered. Are you sure Michael Hall is not guilty? asked Zena. Were he guilty, I should not have seen him, answered Quarles, decidedly. His poor wife, said Zena. Pray, dear, that we may carry sunlight to her again, said the professor solemnly. I thought that our journey to Birmingham was for the purpose of interviewing Parrish's nephew, but it was not. Quarles got a list of the leading second-hand booksellers there. A bookworm, Wigan, remains a bookworm to the end of his days. Although nothing has been said about it, I warrant Mr. Parrish bought books and had them sent to Thornfield. He might have bought them in London, I said. I think it was Birmingham, said Quarles. So far he was right. It was the third place we visited. Baines and Son was the firm, and we saw old Mr. Baines. He had constantly sold books to Mr. Parrish of Thornfield, who had been in the shop several times. But their intercourse was chiefly by correspondence. Good books, certainly. Mr. Parrish knew what he was doing, and never bought rubbish. His purchases might be expected to increase in value, asked Quarles. Yes, but forgive me. Why these questions? Ah, I suppose you would have heard. Mr. Parrish is dead. Indeed, I am very sorry to hear it. We are looking into his affairs, Quarles went on. Is there any money owing to you? No. The fact is, Mr. Parrish was murdered. Murdered? exclaimed Baines, starting from his chair. Do you mean for some treasured volume he possessed? Do you mean by some bibliomaniac? You think he may have had such a treasure, then? I know he had many rare and valuable books, Baines answered. You don't happen to know a bibliomaniac who might commit murder? said Quarles. No. Such information would help us because a young man has been condemned for the murder, a man named Hall, Michael Hall. I never heard of him, said Baines. I wonder I did not see the case in the paper. 
caused little sensation said quarles at present it seems one of those crimes committed for small gain mr parrish must have been a man of considerable means said the bookseller considerable means although he was eccentric about money he always sent me cash or some check he had received with a request that i would return him the balance in cash indeed i have constantly acted as his banker he has sent me checks and asked me to send him notes for them where did those checks come from i mean whose were they were they for dividends possibly one or two of them i do not remember but i fancy he sold books sometimes and the checks represented the purchase money we thanked mr baines and just then just as we were leaving quarles said by the way do you happen to know mr charles eade his solicitor queried the bookseller i didn't know he was a solicitor but he is a relation of mr parrish's i believe quarles answered i was not aware of that baines returned mr eade's office is in west street number forty i think he comes in here occasionally to make small purchases not a bookworm like his uncle eh neither the taste nor the money i should imagine said baines as soon as we were in the street the professor turned to me that has been an interesting interview wigan what do you think of the bibliomaniac idea i suppose it goes to confirm your theory i said on the contrary it was a new idea to me it would be an idea well worth following if we found that one or two of parrish's valuable books were missing but we'll try another trail first i think we will go to pershore next how about charles e i expect he is in his office in west street i don't want to see him do you we might call upon him so as to leave no stone unturned i don't think you quite appreciate the difficulty of this case the man may be innocent but we've got to prove it my dear wigan if baines had said that ease was a bibliomaniac i should have gone to west street at once since he is only a lawyer i'm convinced we should get no useful information out of him besides he might very reasonably resent our interference in his uncle's affairs it will be time enough to communicate with him when we have made some discovery which will help michael hall next morning we journeyed to pershore yesterday you suggested that i had a theory wigan said quarles who had been leaning back in the corner of the railway carriage apparently asleep but now became mentally energetic as a fact my theory went no further than this a bookworm in all probability buys books to buy books requires money therefore he must have money in thornfield mr parrish was considered a man of means our friend baines confirms that belief my theory is established it doesn't carry us very far i said it provides another motive for the murder robbery the bookseller's story suggests that parrish must have kept a considerable sum of money in the house it is said nothing was taken but a large amount in notes may be stolen without leaving any noticeable space vacant just one step forward we may take if such a sum existed as is probable remember parrish might at times think of burglars might have mentioned his fears without giving a reason to hall and hall having a life preserver might make a present of it to his friend i did not contradict him but personally i was not at all convinced from the station we went straight to the pawnbroker's and had an interview with the assistant who had identified hall as the man who pawned the salver we arranged that i was a detective helping the professor who was interested in hall and could not believe that he was guilty it proved an excellent line to adopt for it brought out the young fellow's sympathy i asked questions after stating our position and for a time quarles remained an interested listener the assistant described hall fairly accurately he had pawned things before hadn't he i asked yes 
You recognized Hall at once? Yes. There was one very curious point, I said. So long as the articles were his own, and he had a right to pawn them, he gave a false name. Yet when he pawns an article he had stolen, he gave his own name. I think it seems more curious than it is, was the answer. My experience is that whenever an important article is pawned, the correct name is given. The affair becomes a financial transaction, which there is no reason to be ashamed of. I understand that Hall had pawned things of some value before the salver, said Quarles. Jewelry belonging to his wife, for instance. Why didn't he give his own name, then? It is rather the importance of the article which counts than its actual value, said the assistant. In this case, I have no doubt, the prisoner would have said that he had temporarily borrowed the salver. He must redeem it presently. It was an important matter, and by giving his own name, the transaction seemed almost honest. Quarles nodded, as though this argument impressed him. Then he said suddenly, What is George Crosslake? That was the false name Hall used. Did you comment upon the fact when he pawned the salver in his own name? No. It would have been natural to do so, wouldn't it? Perhaps, but we were busy at the time, and... And it didn't occur to you, said Quarles. Now I suggest that when you picked out Hall, you were really identifying the man you knew as George Cross, and that the man who pawned the salver and gave the name Hall was a different person altogether. No. Are you sure the salver was not pawned by a woman? Certain. But you might reconsider your original statement if I produced another man? If such a person exists, why has it not been suggested to me, say, by a photograph? The professor nodded and smiled but I could get nothing out of him that evening, not even whether he was hopeful or not. Next morning we went to Thornfield. I had arranged that we should be allowed to visit the house. For the time being, the local constable had the keys, and we went to his house first. Quarles set him talking about the crime at once. Is Mrs. Hall still in the village? Yes, sir. That's her cottage yonder. And he pointed down the village street. Poor thing, we all sympathize with her. And Mrs. Ashworth, is she still here? No, sir. She was willing, I believe, to remain in charge of Mr. Parrish's house, but it was decided that I should have the keys and look after it. She took a room in the village until after the trial, then she left. How long had she been with Mr. Parrish, constable? About a year, sir. You're not thinking she had anything to do with the murder, are you? She wasn't equal to it. She is a little bit of a woman, and it was a tremendous blow which killed Mr. Parrish. It was quite early in the morning when she discovered the dead man, wasn't it? Yes, before the village was awake. What do you know about Mr. Parrish's nephew? I understand he claims the property as next to kin, said the constable, but he hasn't been near the place, so I don't suppose he expects to be much richer for his uncle's death. Quarles and I went through the village to Parrish's house, which was the most important in the street, but was of no great size. The room in which the dead man had been found was lined with books, and with some excitement manifest in his face, Quarles took several volumes from the shelves and examined them. Value here, Wigan, the old gentleman knew what he was buying. These shelves represent a lot of money, even if he had no other investments. Have you the list of the books Hall was recommended to keep? I had. There were eighteen books in all, such classics as Lamb's Essays, Reynolds' Discourses, and Pope's Homer. We found only ten of them, and careful search convinced us that the others were not on the shelves. If you are looking for a cryptogram, a key to the hiding place of a fortune, the missing books spoil it, I said. I confess that something of the kind was in my mind, said Quarles excitedly, but the missing books are going to help us. The old gentleman had not read these books himself. See, Wigan, uncut pages, at least. 
He took out a penknife. Not uncut, but carefully gummed together. I hadn't thought of this. He slit the pages apart, and from between them took a ten-pound note. Other pages, when unfastened, yielded other notes, five pounds, twenty pounds, and one was for fifty pounds. Enough, Wigan, he exclaimed. We've something better to do than find banknotes. You must see the constable at once and tell him there's a treasure in his house which requires special protection. Then communicate with the Birmingham police and tell them not to lose sight of Charles Eade. And let them also have a description of Mrs. Ashworth. I expect she is lying low in Birmingham. I don't follow your line of reasoning, Professor. I had no very definite theory beyond thinking that Mr. Parrish must be a man of considerable means, said Quarles. That fact, once established, we had a motive for the murder, which did not seem applicable to Michael Hall. It was said that nothing beyond the salver was missing. Only Mrs. Ashworth could establish that fact. You remember Zena's question? How was it, since people were such early risers in Thornfield, that Mrs. Ashworth had to wait so long before anyone came? There was one obvious answer. She was up much earlier than usual that morning, perhaps had not been to bed that night. The constable has said that the village was not awake. Again, it was Mrs. Ashworth who gave information about the nephew in Birmingham. It is possible Parrish may have mentioned him to his housekeeper, but since she had only been with him a year, and the old gentleman held no communication with his nephew, it is unlikely. Once more, the housekeeper was a little too definite about the time. She had a story to tell. The precision might be the result of careful rehearsal. These points were in my mind from the first, but they were too slight for evidence. Now the missing volumes give us the link we want. Who could have taken him? Either Mrs. Ashworth or someone with her connivance. I don't think it was Mrs. Ashworth. I believe he's the man who murdered Mr. Parrish. His nephew? Charles Eade, but I do not think he is his nephew. Let me reconstruct the plot. Supposing Eade, either from Mr. Baines or from some assistant in his shop, heard of Parrish and his eccentricities, he would naturally assume that a lot of money was kept in this house. When, a year ago, Mr. Parrish wanted a housekeeper, the opportunity came to establish a footing here, so Mrs. Ashworth, the accomplice, came to Thornfield. A man like Parrish would be secretive, not easy to watch, but in time the housekeeper would find out where he hid his money and would note the books. She would only be able to note those used during the past year, the eight books which are missing, Wigan. Now the robbery had to be carefully arranged, suspicions must be thrown upon someone, and Hall was at hand. To emphasize his need of money, the salver was pawned, I thought, by Mrs. Ashworth, but doubtless he did it himself, choosing a busy time. The scoundrels chose the night when Hall was having supper with the old man, and whether the original intention was robbery only or murder, everything worked in their favor. He took the eight books away that night, and the housekeeper stayed to give the alarm and tell her story. Now mark what happens. After the murder, a will is found in which eighteen books are mentioned, and immediately we hear through Mrs. Ashworth that Mr. Parrish has a nephew living, who, as the constable tells us, had laid claim to the property. The villains are greedy, and want the other ten volumes. Is there any real evidence to support the story, Professor? Yes, those eight missing books, which will be found in the possession of Charles Eade. Few men have received less sympathy than Charles Eade when he paid the last penalty of the law. He was not only a murderer, but it had intended to let an innocent man suffer. The missing volumes were found, and some of the money saved, and it was a satisfaction that Mrs. Ashworth, who was sentenced to a long term of imprisonment, confessed. Her story agreed with Quarles's theory in almost every particular, even to the fact that Eade was no relation to the dead man. 
Quarles and I visited the halls afterward, and the professor very simply told them of his experience, offering no explanation, expressing no opinion. But as we traveled back to London, he said to me, If men were ready to receive them, such manifestations of mercy would be constant experiences. Is it not only natural they should be? Take a child, he is only happy and secure because every moment of his life his parents help him, protect him, think for him. Without such care and thought, would he live to become a man? It is a marvelous thing that whereas a child learns to lean wholly on the wisdom of his parents, man, as a rule, seems incapable of wholly trusting in almighty wisdom, and when he is forced to realize it, calls it miraculous. The miracle would be if these things did not happen. I did not answer. We were both silent until the train ran into Paddington. End of chapter 4